Hi guys, producer Matt here. Unfortunately, we had a few technical issues with this recording, so we've used the backup from Zoom. Hope that's okay. The interview is excellent. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as always with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hi, Jim. And today we are joined by a very special guest whom Tim is going to introduce for us. Yeah, uh, we're very happy to uh, have Kim Phillips-Fane uh, join us. Hi, Kim. Hi. Hi. It's great uh, to be here. Yeah, we're really excited uh, that you are here because so much, so much of what we... <laughs> have written ourselves in our own research and so much of the programme revolves around New York City in 1975 and this pivotal uh, event of the fiscal crisis which continues to reverberate. So um, so let me introduce you anyway, a little more formally, Kim. Kim is the Robert Gardner Kenneth T. Jackson Professor of History at Columbia University and a his historian of 20th century American politics and political economy. Uh, she is the author of Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal, which was published by Norton uh, in 2009. And the book that we're mainly going to be focusing on today, uh, Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics, which was published uh, in 2017 by Metropolitan Books and, and other publishers internationally. Uh, and this book, Fear City, is widely considered to be the best account of the New York City fiscal crisis of 1975, around which so much of the late 20th century uh, seems to revolve, and uh, indeed certainly much of our podcast seems to hinder as well. So it's really wonderful that you can join us today. Kim, I should just add that Kim is currently serving on the executive board of the Labour and Working Class History Association, which feels relevant as well. We're going to try and get through this in an hour. It feels like an impossible task, but let's see how it goes. I mean, to begin with, and this is this itself is a, a bit of a huge question, but um, I was wondering if you could lay out some of the national, international even, and even city-based causes, elements that kind of form the background to the emergence of this fiscal crisis that erupted in New York City in, in 1975. Yes, definitely. Well, let me say, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I think that the work that you both have done, both about music and about culture and about its meaning under capitalism has been really important for me. And so it's it's wonderful to be here. One of the things about the fiscal crisis, and I'm sure that you both have found this, working on it or thinking about it is a bit like dropping a stone into a pond. There's this way in which the mm. ripples kind of keep going out and out. And what's so interesting about it, and this is you know, really the case in some ways about any historical event, is that the more you look at it and the more sides and the more angles and the deeper you go into it, it becomes like a, a lens that you can see the entire society through. So it's it, it it is an event that is at once deeply local. It's very much about national politics and it also comes to have this international meaning. And the 
book, Fear City, as I was working on it, I, I had, it's, it's a book which is very concentrated around a fairly short period of time. And yet there was a way in which I felt that I could keep working on it just endlessly and could keep finding more and more. And you could just spend years and years working on a few months in 1975. Mm -hmm. And that's how rich a lot of these events are. So when we talk about the fiscal crisis, what people are, are using that as shorthand for is to talk about an episode over the course of 1975 in which New York, the capital of international capital in many ways, the home of Wall Street, the largest metropolis in the United States, a center of media and culture so that its importance in the kind of image of America of itself is outsized for sure. Mm. This, this vital city almost had to declare bankruptcy and came very close. The city government came very, very close to having to declare bankruptcy over the course of this year. And this, uh, at the time, kind of transfixed people both in the city and in the country and around the world. Why was it? How was it that a city that was so obviously wealthy and powerful could be brought to the edge of fiscal collapse? And what did it mean for the future of the city, the future of the United States, the future of capitalism? Well, and I guess one last point is that the fiscal crisis became or became widely seen as a turning point, not just for the city, not just for New York, but for how uh, capitalism had operated in the past and would in the future, what it meant to adjust to the broad shifts in political economy over the course of the 1970s. Mm. And I think it was both both on the left and the right, both sides really understood what was happening in New York as not just a kind of local affair, but a um, transformative event that was made, had kind of a, a way of organizing the city, a way of organizing the economy had been possible previously, would not be going forward. And so I think it, it came, it's an event that was both significant in its own right, but came to have this outsized meaning. I think it's really worth stressing the context is New York yeah. City has developed effectively yeah. a welfare state and a public right. sector is comparable to what Western European governments are right. providing for their citizens. And this is something that people, even in other parts of the states, even people in New York these days, they're young enough. Certainly people in the UK don't really know about our, our image that we have of the public realm in the United States in the post-war period is that after after the kind of expansive period of the New Deal, it doesn't really keep up with the Western European extension of things like health, yeah. provision, public education. And that's not really true. That's not true in specific municipalities and above all in New York City. In New York City, you have yeah. an incredibly extensive uh, extension of public education, of free university education, of health care, of arts, of a kind of really a public sector, on, on, which is more or less comparable to the Scandinavian public sectors for a couple of decades. You know, and, and also symbolically, New York is important because New York is in some places the, is the birthplace of the New Deal. That's where Roosevelt came from. That's where the entire project is born. So for all those reasons, I think it has this really important status, does it not? Yeah. New York has a, I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that in many ways in the post-war years after World War II, New York is quite unique in the United States. Um, there's a much larger public sector in the city. 
than really anywhere else except you know possibly California has has something somewhat similar but New York is is really quite different from the rest of the United States in both the actual institutions and the way people think about and understand them and there's many reasons for this this goes back really into the late 19th early 20th century the history of the early labor movement in new york the relative strength of socialism pre 1917 socialism in the city the new york is the first growing out of the early the labor movement of the early 20th century develops a set of health and safety codes and a kind of proto or set of early arrangements around collective bargaining that anticipate what emerges during the New Deal. Um, there are some institutions like City College that have a, that are tuition free going back into the late 19th century um, or into what, since they were founded. There's a kind of set of public hospitals. But all of these institutions really expand dramatically during the 1930s and 1940s or during the New Deal era. New York develops a much larger. And I think another important part of this, which you really see starting in the 30s and 40s, is a major investment in art in the city, public art of different sorts. And this is coming out of the New Deal and out of the different investments that Roosevelt's government made in art and artists. But it's really important in New York. And many, you know, there's both artists being employed to work in public art projects, murals and the like, but there's also a easel project, which is really subsidizing artists to produce art in their own studios. There's the Federal Theater Project. So there's a whole investment in cultural life, which is really important in the city in the 30s and early 40s. Um, there's also, I mean, another, just to, this is just kind of sketching some of the things that make the city different. The public transit system is obviously far more extensive than really in any other American city. It has problems. It always has had problems, but its scale and role in the city's life is quite unique. The public university system that had been tuition free going back well before the New Deal grows dramatically in the post-war years so that new campuses are opening throughout the city and again, not charging tuition at all. There is a network of public hospitals and a pioneering public health department uh, doing epidemiological research and the like, as well as providing different forms of both primary and emergency care to New Yorkers. Again, this is different from the NHS or a universal, true universal healthcare system, but it is a major investment in public health that is, again, on a scale that is quite special in the American context. And I think this all goes along with the nature of the city, especially at the end of World War II. So New York, like other cities in the United States, sees a lot of investment in manufacturing during the war. And I think it's actually, it's one of the ways the city is so different today. The role of manufacturing industry and blue collar work in the city in the 30s and 40s was again, much, much greater than it is now. Um, the manufacturing sector really dwarfed the fire or the financial insurance real estate sector at the end of World War II. 
we are so accustomed to, I think, thinking about New York as a center of tourism and finance today, that it's easy to forget the extent to which this was also an industrial city, different from Detroit or different from the south side of Chicago, places that are dominated by mass production industries like steel and autos. But it is just in terms of the sheer number of people working in factories, often smaller smaller factories, uh, it is, it's, it's really a, a blue collar and industrial city. And this is in some ways the political economy that supports this massive public sector. Um, it does so both in that these jobs are good enough that they generate enough property tax revenues and uh, kind of a, an economic base that can then support the public sector um, along with, and I think this is this public sector grew in the context of transfers from the federal government also. So it's not, that was very important to its expansion in the city. So it both supports it in terms of the, fiscal health of the city, but also politically, it creates a base of people for whom the public sector is of critical importance and who will vote and um, organize to protect it at many points. The case of rent control, another remarkable mm. feature of the city's landscape at this moment, rent control in New York grows out of the Second World War and when it was part of a broad system of price controls. But in New York, unlike most other cities in the U.S., New York actually managed to maintain a system of rent control, which helped and still helps to create a base of affordable apartments for working class people in the city, working class and middle class people. So out of this organizing and out of this, the, the, the density of working class life in New York helps to create a political base for this unusual public sector, not just in the 30s and 40s, but in the post kind of in the in the 50s and 60s, as it comes under uh, increased pressure in different ways, which we can talk about in a moment. Okay, brilliant. In that context, then, what are the main causes of the physical crisis? Once right. In yes. 70s? So this this public sector comes under increased drain over the course of the 60s and then more dramatically still in the 1970s. And at the heart of this pressure is the um is is really the deindustrialization and suburban flight and the underlying changes in the city's political economy. New York loses about 800,000 people over the course of the 1970s. This is about 10% of the city's population. It's really the only decade in the history of the city where it lost substantial population and the population it was losing was a primarily white, affluent, middle-class population. This runs alongside the loss of the industrial base of the city as factories left both for the suburban hinterlands, for the South, and then thanks to tariff changes that made this easier, ultimately going overseas. So there is this underlying change in the structure of the city that demanded some, that was going to create a set of problems inevitably. Now, this runs alongside the changes at the federal level and the both the rollback in federal spending on cities. Um, and this, you kind of see it going back and forth. There's an expansion again in the 60s, but then with Nixon's election, 
1968, and then re-election in 1972, federal support for the Great Society and for the anti-poverty programs that grew out of the 60s, it was clear was not going to continue. So there are these large changes in the background, and they create a set of deficits and questions for the city. How can it continue to support this public sector, which has been so important, which the city's um, leadership is committed to? And the city responds in a variety of different ways. Um, There are some efforts to increase taxes, especially under Lindsay in the mid-60s. The city adopts its income tax, which it still has at that time. Um, The city also tries to, there's actually a a stock transfer tax for a brief period of time. So trying to tax the financial sector in particular. Uh, It also flirts with the idea of finding ways to tax the broader metropolitan area through commuter taxes and the like, so that people who are whose wealth is generated in the city Mm -hmm. can't just take that and sequester it in the suburbs. Um, but have to keep contributing somehow to the city. Part of the problem that the city runs into is that New York can't just adjust its taxes unilaterally. It always depends on support from the state Mm -hmm. for anything other than raising the property tax. And so this situation is created where the mayor is constantly appealing to the state government for new taxes and those are either permitted or not. So th- that's a, a, a way that the city actually doesn't control its own mm-hmm. finances to a very important extent. So the city tries in different ways to adjust to this new, this, this developing problem about its finances. But in the early 1970s, it makes the critical decision to expand, to deal with the problem essentially by punting it to the future and starting to borrow a lot more money in short-term debt to cover different costs in an immediate sense. And and there was a way in which this happened without anybody clearly saying, this is what we're going to do. It starts using these different uh, short-term borrowing strategies that the state government has pioneered and um, they, they call them moral obligation notes. They, which are basically, there's no, um, unlike a normal issuance of bonds, which the people have to vote on and endorse, this debt is not, it doesn't have the full legal weight of the city government behind it. And it's secured by things like future taxes to be raised. It doesn't have a clear income source to support it. So the city expands its short-term debt quite dramatically in the early 1970s, and also does so at the moment when interest rates are beginning to rise nationally. It does so at the time of the energy crises and national recessions that begin in 1973. Uh, Not a good context in which to be seeking to borrow more forcefully. Another aspect of this context that I think doesn't always get enough attention is that The financial sector itself is acting in a new and different way in the early 70s. Many of the banks on which the city has long relied are expanding their international investments and are no longer themselves as interested or concerned with either the tax advantages that they get from holding municipal bonds or with the whole project of financing cities like New York. And So it's not a good time to be looking for more money from 
the municipal bond market. Also, many other cities across the country are also experiencing fiscal strain and also trying to borrow more. So for all of these reasons, part of the effect of this is that it greatly augments the power of the city's bankers and of the investors in municipal bonds. And essentially, early in 1975, the city's bankers say that there is no longer a market for the city's debt. They can't sell it to anybody. Nobody wants to hold it. And they won't finance it any longer. So they won't take the city's bonds and sell them to investors across the country. And they say they just can't do it any longer. The market doesn't exist. And once that happens, that's really what sets the dynamic of the fiscal crisis in motion. So this is goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. Part of what the dynamic of the fiscal crisis is, is that there's a lot of so a sense in which there's a time pressure to get money to finance the debt. And that if you don't get the money by a certain moment, you'll default, you won't be able to pay back. You won't be able to cover interest. You won't be able to cover principal. That's when the city would actually go bankrupt. It wouldn't be able, it would have to default on its debts and say, we can't pay the back. So there's an incredible time pressure. And yet it is happening against this backdrop of these changes that take a long while to unfold. So there's a real disjunction between the need to solve these problems as far as your budget goes in a very immediate, very short time frame. But the changes have unfolded over this long time frame and are not, you know, don't permit a quick or easy solution. Amazing. Well, I think this is a good moment to bring in a bit of music. Uh, Kim, what, what track would you like to bring in? You sent us a great selection of music. Yes, where to begin? Maybe we should start with the television track Venus de Milo and a television would you know it would as a band would play at CBGB's and other downtown New York locations at about this time but I call your attention especially to the beginning of the song which invokes Broadway in particular and I think what's really interesting about this song is the description of an old world falling apart and something new coming into existence and the sense of intoxication and confusion and fear and excitement at a moment of intense historical change. Great selection. So, so can I ask? Um, I mean, it'd be really interesting to hear you. It's, it's, you've painted a, a vivid and detailed and very interesting and compelling backdrop to how the fiscal crisis came about. I mean, one of the questions that has, I mean, it springs to mind already from what you're saying, but it's, it's kind of, it's, it could come at any point in in this discussion, really, is the extent to which you know uh, this question of let's call it in inverted commas, unsustainable debt is is kind of real, mm-hmm. 
because governments throughout the entirety of their history have run up debts and have supported debts, uh, whether they be local ones or whether they be national ones. So the sense that somehow a city arrives at a point where it can't sustain its debt seems to be, there's a point of view to this because governments, you know, are always in debt. And so it becomes a political choice about what debt they're prepared to support and what debt they're not prepared to support. I mean, one link thing is the way in which, you know, this is an economy in, in transition uh, and is, is is moving from an industrial to a post-industrial uh, economy. There's no way that a city like New York is going to be able to stop that kind of tr- transition. And in some ways, the culture that Jeremy and I have written about, at least in part, I don't want to say celebrates the transition, but is kind of grows out of it or is an expression yeah. or is even, you know, a protagonist within the change. Mm-hmm. Counterculture as a, as a, as a, in part, a desire to enjoy different forms of collective as well as individual freedom. So that's, you know, that's going on as well. So I, I just wonder to what extent you feel that already that there's, there are certain political choices moving into this decision that, you know, New York mm-hmm. has a debt a debt that's right. related to you know, an economic transition and the decision to to not support it somehow either within the state or nationally is is a is a political choice. Yeah, I think that's a great question and you you put it very very well. I think it is because I I guess one of the so so one interpretation of the fiscal crisis which was present in left circles in the city at the time, and then subsequently too, has always been that essentially there there really wasn't a a fiscal crisis. In a way, it was all both a a power grab and and sort of just an entirely politically manufactured set of events. That gets at something important, I think, that framework, because something that people often ask about is what else could the city have done? And the thing is that technically, there's plenty of ways to have avoided what the city ultimately did do, which was make these massive budget cuts. There are plenty of ways that the city could have handled the gap between its revenues and expenses. So one example, which is a little technical, but the Medicaid system in the city at the time Medicaid being the health insurance program for very low income people. Medicaid as a as a federal program started in the 60s. It is set up to split the cost between the federal government and the state government. And then in the context of the 50% of the Medicaid costs that are covered by the state, there's another split. Um, and in New York, that split is that the state government takes half the state's share and localities take the other half. So New York City and other cities in New York were responsible for 25% of their Medicaid costs. Now in Illinois, it's different. It's like five or 6% that cities are supposed to bear. This is a kind of boring and technical description, but it just suggests how do you change the split between either the city and the state, or even the state and the federal government, the city's budget picture, which seems so rigid, would suddenly have looked very, very different. And there's many things like that. You could imagine, again, technically, why could you not develop a system of taxation that did actually ask the suburbs of the city to contribute in a more meaningful way to the well-being of the city? After all, the people who live in the suburbs, by and large, are working in the city their economic fortunes are dependent on the city, but they are not paying any property tax to the city any longer. 
you could find ways through the tax system to address that type of issue. I think in the city itself, there was a lot of trepidation about raising taxes, raising the income tax, which again was a pretty new development. You could, or raising property taxes because landlords were complaining that they didn't have enough money to operate and were either abandoning buildings or departing. So there was a lot of trepidation in the city about raising taxes on wealthier New Yorkers. But again, you could potentially have thought of ways to do that or to do that at the state level, let alone the national level. Th those things were unthinkable, whereas shutting the fire station or the library was not unthinkable. That was a perfectly reasonable solution to this problem. Hmm. So I think technically there's no reason you couldn't have adopted these different options. Politically, every single one of them was totally off the table and would have been greeted by with, with shrieks of dismay and a sense that if you were putting this forward, you just didn't understand the nature of the problem. And so I think part of the issue of the fiscal crisis is how, how the whole problem is constructed so that solutions that are anything other than making massive budget cuts come to seem out of touch with you know, reality in some way. And that is political. Mm. On the other hand, the whole situation is not simply a political invention either. And I actually was struck in working on the fiscal crisis how relatively little theoretical sophistication or overtly ideological analysis is deployed mm. in the city, especially early in the crisis. In a way, what happened is a uh, lesson in maybe how ideology actually works, because it's not like there was a plan or a vision and the bankers then decided to enforce it on the city literally. I think I think you have to take what they are saying seriously. They couldn't sell the bonds. They didn't have investors for them any longer. And that meant that they something or unless you just ask the banks to not operate as capitalist institutions any longer, something had to change. So there's a way in which these things, it's like there's a, a reality or a force behind them, which is the nature of the social and economic order itself. Um, things could be different, but for things to be different, you would need a change in at, at a larger and deeper level. Well, that's exactly the situation in the UK at the same time. The 1976 IMF mandated right. crisis at the end of the, the welfare state expansion on exactly the same terms. You, you reached mm. a point where the capitalists are not lying, that they just can't carry on like that and still be capitalists, basically. They're not lying when they say that. They can't. You, know, wage, you can't just keep expanding wage demands in the public sector like forever and still have a system, an economic system, based on capital accumulation and profit. So they're not lying. Uh, and that is the choice that faces the society. <laughs> Broadly speaking, right. like most of the key political actors and institutions do not have the stomach for some kind of revolutionary transition to socialism. <laughs> I think here, what can we turn to except the Dill's class war? Um, so this is a song... I, I'm not, I don't remember the exact date on it, but the, the early verses describe the intense pressure faced by municipal governments in both um, New York and Los Angeles, um, many other cities too, implicitly. And they suggest the extent to which this is, you know, what a, a, a fiscal crisis of these cities is linked to a much larger struggle of class politics. Yeah. 
can see why it can be in particular difficult for a city or a, you know a, a US state government to raise its own money but it seems to me that I mean if we look at certainly you know in subsequent years you know American debt I mean maybe I'm wrong about this right. but grew grew exponentially under mm-hmm. Reagan through mm-hmm. precisely through tax cuts that favored the rich and spending massively on this on military industrial complex that you know also benefit you know one of the sectors you know republican sectors preferred sectors by the republican party uh, within the economy so you know I think Reagan might have a rhetoric that it talks about kind of favoring markets over you know the state and the individual over the public etc but you know went into you know was prepared to use the gov- you know national government to, to support more debt than ever before and that debt has kind of in in many respects grown so what was I'm kind of intrigued what was going on with President yeah. Ford at this point and his his relationship to New York City and and what we indeed might even understand his own politics to be because he wasn't you know the most right wing of all Republican presidents. Yeah, Ford's mm-hmm. predicament during the fiscal crisis is really quite fascinating in its own right. So Gerald Ford was never elected to either the presidency or for that matter the vice presidency. He becomes president after Nixon's resignation, and he became vice president after the departure and ignominy of Spiru Agnew. So he is a Midwestern congressman prior to rising to these positions and is caught. Well, I think there's a couple of things. On the one hand, he and he is in 1975 looking towards trying to become the Republican nominee for the president in 1976. Ford is very aware that he's going to face a challenge from the right within the Republican Party, and especially from Ronald Reagan, governor of California at this moment. And his his, his reaction to New York is really, I think, driven by this in large part, is staving off challenges from his right. And then also as a you know, as a Midwesterner and with his sensibility about what the Republican Party might represent, he is also, you know, this sense of New York as a as as a center of the new left, of the counterculture, of the gay rights movement, of gay liberation. This is only six years after Stonewall. It is New York is also a center of radical feminism at this moment. So the sense that the city, that New York represents something outside of the American, quote unquote, mainstream is it's both sexual and cultural, as well as the, the, the sense that New York needs to be taught a lesson in moral responsibility spans not just the fiscal issues, but also the sense of the city's cultural role. And it's a very racialized city as well, isn't it? Yes, and that yeah. too, New York, and this is an important aspect of the story too, is that New York, um, you know, at the end of World War II, New York is an overwhelmingly white city. This is also at the moment, it's, it's um, 20 years after the end of uh, the unlimited immigration or relatively unlimited European immigration that had been the situation in the late 19th and early 20th century. Asian immigration, of course, was off the table and African immigration was also restricted. But this is this is a moment of this is 20 years after the end of the mass immigration era. 
And New York is a very, very white city at the end of World War II. By the mid-70s, this is no longer the case, thanks both to Black migration from the South, some from the Caribbean as well, and Puerto Rican immigration, which really expands over the course of the 1940s and 1950s. Um, so New York is also seen as the city of people of color, and, and not just that, a politicized Black and Puerto Rican, especially Latino population. Mm. Um, this is it's been the center of the Young Lords, a radical Puerto Rican organization. It's been one of the centers of the of strength of the Black Panthers. Black and Latino people pay, played a very important role in the organization of municipal unions in the city. So in all these ways, New York is the center of political, culture, cultural radicalism. And Ford positions himself against that. Ford is in a further complicated position because his, his, his vice president is actually Nelson Rockefeller, who had been the governor of New York mm-hmm. State. Um, during the late 1960s and had actually overseen and engaged in and really permitted much of the massive burrowing of the city and which was paralleled at the state level. Rockefeller represented the kind of most liberal wing of the Republican Party through the 1960s. So he has Rockefeller on the one hand. He also is advised by a group of people who represent really a much more ideologically purist version of free market thought. His secretary of the treasury, William Simon, actually had come out of municipal bond trading and was really committed to a very ideological reading of the New York situation. And uh, he also was advised by Alan Greenspan. This was Greenspan's first role in Washington, was the chair of Ford's Council of Economic Advisors. Greenspan would go on to head the Fed. But at this point, he was still fresh from the circles of objectivism and Ayn Rand, who was a good friend of his in the city. And Greenspan and Simon in particular really insisted that New York should be allowed to go bankrupt, that this would not affect the national economy in a meaningful way that the city's problems were entirely self-generated and this that it, it was a reflection of the political irresponsibility of the city, that it should be left to deal with them itself and that Washington should not get involved at all. If the city did get federal aid, then that would just authorize federal aid for lots of cities in the future and so on and so forth. So Ford is really caught in the middle of these different um, pressures in his own administration. And he is, like, from the outset, the mayor of the city and the governor of New York go to Washington. They try to meet with Ford. They try to get help. From the very beginning, he is very okay. clear that he does not want to help them. Un- and there's a sense all along, unless they do something radical in the city to change their ways. But um he says in we to have to they have to bite the bullet and make a set of changes in the city and otherwise they won't get any federal aid or support this of course comes to a head in late october of 1975 when there are several bills circulating in congress for federal aid for the city and ford 
gives a speech. At first, he hadn't even wanted to give the speech because he thought that for the president to say anything at all about the bankruptcy or possible bankruptcy of New York would just give the sense that the federal government had some responsibility. He thought there shouldn't be any statement, but eventually it came to seem he had to give a statement. So he did give one. And in this speech, he says that he'll veto any bill that comes forward or that wins support in Congress to provide a bailout for the city of New York. Um, he says this is not this you know, the city's problems are local, but they're related to the problems of the country as a whole. If we go on spending the way we have been, who will bail out the United States of America? And so he draws a connection between the political choices the city faces, the political choices the country mm -hmm. faces. This is the speech that then the Daily News takes it and says in the famous headline, Ford to New York, drop dead. Mm. He was very upset. He said, I didn't mean for it to drop dead. But mm. it, it was kind of disingenuous because he really was saying that um, the federal government would not provide aid to the city. So for some reason, he was surprised when people were upset about that. Again, speaking of political choices, I mean, this choice, he wound up losing the he, he, you know, Ford did not carry New York in the election of 1976, um, which is part of why Carter was elected. And so he, he did pay a political cost for this in the city, but he was you know, he was gambling on the political future. Ford, although he had this very um, you know, this position that he wasn't going to aid the city, he did wind up providing mm. aid to New York. And mm. he did so partly because uh, the city's bankers had worked out a, basically the city agreed to make a set of steep budget cuts in mm. return for aid, both from private investors and also from the federal government. But um, he also was under a lot of you know, the, the, the idea that New York was just going to be allowed to go bankrupt. One of the things very striking about these people is that they have this sense of they're going to break all the sacred cows and they're not going to listen to the way things have been in the past. And there's something very transgressive about it and their approach to it and this willingness to entertain unthinkable things or this, and an embrace of that or a sense we're going to, you know, we're not going to pay any attention to who, who cares if New York goes bankrupt. That's not mm. going to matter at all. And in, in some ways, it, it certainly anticipates the relative recklessness of parts of the Republican Party today mm. in the United States or saying we're going to let the, you know, who who cares if the federal government goes bankrupt or who defaults on its debt? We, we don't care. We're going to hold on to this, you know, let the shutdowns happen or what have you. Mm. So there's something about it that this this gleeful willingness to play with people's lives. And in the context of the 70s, there were many business people who went to Washington and testified and said the city can't be allowed to go bankrupt. Um, there was also this Cold War anxiety. The United States has had, of course, just lost the Vietnam War. There were, there were many reports along the lines of what will Moscow think if New York goes bankrupt? Um, there were these reports of you know, articles about the fiscal crisis in Pravda. Um, so I think there was a sense that it just, even if parts of the Ford administration were willing to stick to this very hard line, that the stability, the larger political and economic stability demanded some kind of action be taken. Helmut Schmidt, the chancellor of West Germany, was similarly you know, denounced for, for this kind of recklessness. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it, it 
the eventual bailout assistance that came was contingent on New York making mm. this very dramatic yeah. set of budget cool. cuts. But it's also just important the people who really were willing to push things to the edge of bankruptcy were sort of reined in by a larger establishment that thought this was crazy. Can we have another music selection? And after that, Jem can maybe come in with a question. Sure. Well, maybe we should go to um, the Rolling Stones' Shattered. In this song, which is also very much about New York, you again hear, and I think this speaks to your work and the work of the podcast, the ways that this moment of, so in this song, they describe the increasingly dire straits of the city, but they do so in this musical kind of description of bed bugs and the crime rate going up, 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 up. But they do so, again, in this musical uh, style that is just totally exuberant Mm. and celebratory. And I I think it's not that they're celebratory of the fact of the social despair or the crime rate. It's that, but I think there is this way in which the quality of the fiscal crisis is that these leaders who people had trusted to know what they were doing or to take care of things were just they were also kind of shown to be bankrupt and not in control of things mm. at all. Mm. And even though that you know, created these very difficult situations, it also just created this spirit of openness and um, exhilaration almost, like when the roller coaster starts to drop. So I think that's one of the things you hear in this song. Yeah, that's a great reading of the song. I think that's great. I'd be interested to know like where Mick Jagger's head was at politically at this stage. I think his, his brief flirtation <laughs> with Trotsky at any stage had been left long <laughs> left behind. Whether he had embraced what I understand is his current position of Randian libertarianism. Right, I have no idea. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, yeah, that does speak to the next topic we wanted to get into, really, because obviously there's this very complicated relationship between the the economics of the city uh, both in the in that post-war period and and during the crisis of the 70s and the cultural production the really efflorescence of cultural creativity which we particularly associate with the sort of period from the mid 60s through to the mid 80s in in new york i I mean again this is really closely paralleled in in the uk as well so on the one hand there's this sense of a social democratic infrastructure on which everything really depends to some extent on the other hand there's this question as to what ex- the, there's this sense that you know the counterculture most broadly conceived is kicking against all, all those kind of cultural social limitations that are bound up with that settlement and and then there's the whole question in in really crude terms of well what does you know eight, eight you know eight hundred thousand people leaving the city you know is that one of the yeah. conditions the possibility for rents dropping in parts of the city that or for space opening up 
So I suppose, broadly speaking, we'd like you to reflect a little bit on well, what is the relationship between the existing economic infrastructure in New York, the existing socioeconomic mm -hmm. infrastructure, the, the crisis, the transition that it's undergoing, and these, this sense of kind of extraordinary cultural creativity and possibility that seems to be being experienced and, and expressed in so many ways at that moment. Yeah, I think it's one of the really remarkable aspects of the city, and it often leads to a set of somewhat paradoxical, intense nature of the conversation about it, where people on the one hand invoke this cultural moment in the city, and then others say, well, you don't, you just, that's naive, that's nostalgic, you don't understand how hard it was. Um, this is actually a terrible moment. Why are you romanticizing it this way? And I, I think what is I guess I would point that this is a complicated question and it it probably has also, I think it plays out differently for different groups in the right, city. Right, yes. But, but first, I guess both materially, you, you do have to point you know, the, the things like the transformation of Soho at this time, which is a result of deindustrialization and these loft spaces being opening up and people First, just reclaiming them as living spaces illegally, and then eventually pushing for a set of kind of laws about loft conversions, and and generally the the low cost of living in the city at this time, which you know make, makes it much easier to live in New York, you know, than it, it certainly is now, and helps to create the in the you know, Patty Smith's lovely memoir just kids. I mean, all of that is really contingent on her and Robert Maplethorpe paying these extremely cheap rents at the moment. So I think there is a, a kind of material basis for this cultural life. But I, I guess I, I do think that that it is also just this weird sense of openness that comes from this awareness, implicit awareness of being between these cultural, these political moments and an old leadership really being discredited and a set of questions surging to the forefront about what the city and to some extent the whole broader society is going to look like in the future. And I think we now read backward into that, the consolidation of conservative power in different ways. But at the time, that was much less clear. And there was a sense of openness and uncertainty and disillusionment that was oddly culturally rich. I think another aspect of this, and I, it is a little, is that even as the population drops, you do also start to see, and this comes more into full recognition in the city in the 80s and 90s, but the broad immigration into the city that plays a very vital role in ultimately and kind of an underrecognized and unappreciated role in terms of saving it. Um, immigration from Latin America, from Africa, from Asia, especially China, um, that this is the moment when that immigration and this is kind of following again, like the revision of national immigration laws in the mid 60s. But these new populations are also coming into the city and are moving into the neighborhoods that have been abandoned by white flight and are starting to build a new set of economic 
and cultural institutions. And that also plays a really important role in the city at this time. And so it's not, there's also a way in which the depiction of crisis is very focalized through the city's middle class. But there's another set of changes that are happening that, um, you know, that, that help to sustain the city going forward and are also, I think, probably playing a role. But maybe you have to think a little more about how this plays out in terms of the music and art of the time. But it's not a stagnant situation either. I mean, this is very different. You know, this is a, one of the differences between New York and, say, um, Detroit at this you know moment. I mean, it's really interesting to paint that that particular picture. Um, the sense that I got from interviewing, uh, I don't know what your own experience has been like, but certainly interviewing people who lived in the city in that era is that, you know, there might have been concerns, there might have been hardships. It's not as if we don't have concerns and hardships now, right? Uh, it's not unique to 1970s New York City. But there was also this, there was a vibrancy and a sense of community even a, I don't know, a sense of, of possibility, the sheer level of cultural creation that came out very specifically out of what we we probably like to call scenes, not just an individual sitting in the kind of, you know, the candlelit loft coming up with something or other that is right. then recognised globally, but it's kind of, it's the interaction of people in, in real time and space that this is, you know, there's almost a sense in which the peak of this culture might have been 1970s New York. Just this question of how different scenes and different populations in the city experience these changes in in different ways. So the message is a song um, that is coming out of the early, it's one of the early mass hits of hip hop, I believe. But hip hop, of course, originates out of a very grassroots, very local scene um, with the I guess people have been celebrating um, or were celebrating last year as the 50 year anniversary of hip hop. And I think when right. people were talking about that, what they were really referring to was the the party, the the party in a a uh, I, I believe that this the 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 building or the apartment which hosted was it DJ Cool Herc's sister who organized yes. the party. Yeah, so yeah. she organized a party, and the party is actually in the recreation room mm. of a building which i think is a mitchell llama building which means that it is an apartment building that was built for middle-income people with forms of subsidy from the state government so it actually is this oh, this housing that. complex which is itself very much a product of the post-war years yeah. and it's a building um you know one of these large 1950s 1960s apartment buildings which features you know kind of, it's not a very glamorous or pretty outside or exterior but it sustains a kind of communal life um and it's a building in the bronx and so it's in the, in the, the bronx is of all the boroughs in new york experiences this very dramatic population decline um even more so than the city as a whole it also is the site of um, a great the, the fire wave of the 1970s, which was mm. caused in turn partly by arson or by mm. landlords burning down buildings to collect mm. insurance, but also was just generated by carelessness and neglect for the city and its physical infrastructure, and um, is you know one of the the cutbacks of the 70s include fire departments which is 
was, I think, one of the the sort of shocking aspects of them was that the city was literally burning down in places. And yet this is the moment when rather than trying to come up with a collective solution at the level of the city government, the solution was just to let it burn um, or that's how people experienced it. And I think it, it, Marshall Berman has a phenomenal essay Mm. um, dealing with many of these themes, roots, ruins, and revival, Mm. I think, Mm. which was published in the village voice and, may have shown up in some of his one of his collections, but mm. he talks a bit about the fire wave and the psychological impact of fire on a neighborhood or community and the trauma of having the neighborhood in flames, um, you know, what that means both for the people who leave and the people who stay, and just the fear and fragility that it inevitably evokes. And so hip hop comes out of this world that is, you know, in this crisis and also that had previously been a space of middle class aspiration, moving to the Bronx for Black families in the post-war years was a move upward. It was a kind of securing of a kind of larger, more comfortable spaces outside of the hyper-segregated neighborhoods of Harlem and Black neighborhoods in the city previously. And so the destruction of the 70s represents the the kind of annihilation of a whole vision of security that had existed. So the message is a song which is it's it's funny it's it's similar in certain ways to the Stones track but it's describing the experience much more the, the, the kind of the, the much more uh directly violent and frightening experience of parts of Black New York during this period. And um, it has kind of like Shattered, it has this exuberance or this kind of very jazzy and sort of frenetic refrain. Uh, Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. And this is just the way it sounds has this sort of upbeat manic quality, even as it's describing a very fragmented violent social world and anybody who's seen the video for this song may remember that it the the at the end of the song it depicts this interaction between a group of black teenagers and white police officers which escalates into police violence and abusiveness so and this is again this is reflecting actually the increased this the turn in the city towards a police response to um, a loss of just the a, a, the a loss of social mm. control and elite control. So the the turn away from a welfare state towards ever more um, forceful policing strategies. The lyrics mm. of the song aren't as much about that, but then the, the, it's in this larger context of a video or the the. Um, that does depict it quite powerfully. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails, used to be a fag hag, such a dance to tango, skipped the life and tango, was her gone print to seem to lost her senses. Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she could tell the stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so did it. She had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge i'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how i keep from going under 
To what extent were was New York City in the kind of uh, crisis that uh, is popularly depicted during the 1970s? So we're told about rising murder rates. We're told about rising crime rates and so on and so forth. We're told about a city in collapse. And yet of the, you know, the the 200 or 300 people I might have interviewed across the course of uh, the books I've researched on the city during this period, I haven't had one person tell me that this <laughs> was their experience, that they wanted right. to leave, that they couldn't take it anymore, uh, that they were close to the edge necessarily. Um, I did some, I'm not a statistician, I'm, you know, I'm not really, you know, so we, I do my own particular histories, but in as much as I did look into crime rates, real estate um, prices, murder mm-hmm. rates, I found it very hard to find anything that was looked scary. Uh, the scary stuff, from what I can remember, starts in uh, in particular in the early 1980s, uh, especially in terms of the murder rate, for example, and just leaping to the conclusions that I might like to leap to, given what I've written. I kind of think that this is to, on some sort of level that this narrative is something of, of a city that is just spiralling out of control and that is mm-hmm. dangerous to walk through, that this is a narrative that on some level was somehow manufactured, didn't s- depict some sort of straightforward reality and was and right. became a lever to justify a series of reforms. The sense of crisis in the city, to what extent is that something that happens after the fiscal crisis, really, when the city does become, and I I think you're right, much more violent in many ways, um, especially in terms of the number of homicides per year, which is climbing in the early 70s. But you're right that the it, it grows, certainly the fiscal crisis and subsequent policies did not make the city any safer. Instead, you see the rise in the number of murders per year climbing until I think 1990 is the peak mm. year with about 20, more than mm. 2,200 people mm. being killed in the city. Mm. Mm. Um, and then also both, you know, the the emergence of crack in the city, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, there's something, I mean, I, and I myself am someone, I, I grew up in the city at this time, um, in oh. fact, and was quite unaware. It never felt dangerous in these ways to me. So I would be part of that. But I think if you look at it with a step backward, you can see that there is this level of of, of violence in the city that is present. But it's interesting to think, is this really something that in many ways comes after the fiscal crisis rather than before? And I don't think that the city in the early 70s was just doing great. I think you can find these elements of of strain within it. There is increasing poverty. The issues around fire certainly predate the fiscal crisis. You do see the um, you know the the increase in crime in the city is beginning even before that. But it also certainly the choices made during the crisis era, don't resolve those problems. And beyond that, there is a way in which the narrative of crisis and despair blots out much of the rest of the life and experience of the city at that time, both in artistic communities, um, in political communities, but also in the growing immigrant communities in the city. Um, And the many people who did not leave New York at this moment, but instead stayed and 
help to to uh, kind of committed to it. So I think it's not. I think you're right that the rhetoric and framework of crisis and the sense of um, despair around that it it has a political function of blotting out the a full vision of what is happening in the city at the time mm-hmm. and making the punitive and, and and policies of cutback seem inevitable and the only choice and necessary to discipline and restrain fantastic well this sets up quite nicely a final sort of may, maybe playful question i don't really know but um i mean it's interesting i just want us to or want you really to to reflect somewhat on the context of what has unfolded in 1975 and the years that follow as this first first round of austerity kind of rolls out and it's really just to suggest that um or to ask you know to what extent we sometimes might see this as you know the the beginning of the birth of neoliberalism, the beginning of the birth of austerity, um, th- the loss of things that were valued um, that you know we can no longer depend upon, and it's to draw this to just draw out this argument that even at the end of of this round, even if we look at the beginning of the the nineteen eighties, even if we go further, you know, although this we have this idea of a city that suddenly is transformed into something mm-hmm. else on some level i wonder what to what extent you think that that's you know this is a much slower more gradual process yeah. that is really at work uh i mean i'll just to, to draw a probably not very accurate parallel um, not so long ago we had an unusually left-wing leader of the labor party a guy called jeremy corbyn and uh and the you know the popular media's response to you know Corbyn was to say that this is kind of you know why a wild form of socialism if he was to you know implement the policies he wanted to implement by getting elected and if you look at what labor even under Corbyn what labor's program was you know it would have i think if everything was implemented it would have taken us back to the beginning of the you know roughly the early 1990s in other words, it you know it would have taken us back to the end of the Thatcher period, which itself was seen as this period of you know understandably right. so this period of rampant privatization, individualization, individualism, competitiveness. That's where we might have gone back to under Corbyn. So in in other words, New York. To what extent was New York City? You know, after the fiscal crisis, still in many ways a social democratic city to what we've seen come since. It, well, that's interesting. The the changes, it's not quite the same because I think that in the immediate aftermath of the fiscal crisis, there are these very sharp cutbacks and to the, the, where you know, thousands of city workers are laid off and cuts to social services and some structural changes like the beginning of tuition at CUNY and um, also closing hospitals. And some of those are reversed or city workers, you know, the, the, the city does not stay with the smaller city workforce. It slowly rebuilds that. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of those things change and are not, you know, it's, it's a, becomes a somewhat cyclical thing and others though tuition at CUNY has remained a feature of the system and nobody's ever talked about really repealing that again. Um, the hospitals that close don't reopen somehow. Um, there is a so so some changes are permanent, others are not. I, I do think though, yeah, things don't change in a minute or overnight. And so there are many ways that the structures of the post-war city 
endure into the 80s and 90s, and honestly, even into the present, maybe one of the aspects of cities is are especially like this. It's not possible to just uproot them and start over again all of a sudden. There's a, an infrastructure, both a physical but a social infrastructure, and that that endures. I mean, one example today is that there is, you know, even to this very day, there is public housing in some of the most extraordinarily expensive neighborhoods in the city. Mm. And I don't think it's, it, it just has been very difficult. <laughs> I'm sure there's many developers that would love to transform the public housing complexes in Chelsea or the Lower East Side to, to make them into private housing, that has been very, very difficult to actually effectuate. So anyway, there's a lot of ways that the the city, it's, um, it, it doesn't, yeah, what we see now doesn't come about all at once. And mm-hmm. even to the present is influenced by the type of city that this was earlier. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, you know, your book is, is so pivotal to what we're interested in. And it's really been a privilege to have you kind of yeah. explain some of the broader and more localized aspects of, the, of this, you know, really important and fascinating period. It's wonderful yeah. to, to think about it with both of you. And yeah, your questions are really excellent. So thank you. Perfect.